Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. I am so excited for today's episode because not only do we have a stellar guest, Vanessa Loader, joining us, but today is also International Women's Day. This holiday traces its history all the way back to 1909 in New York City when women labor activists organized a day of celebration and speeches. And in doing so, they lit a spark, which by the very next year, leapt overseas to demonstrations and commemoration in Germany. This idea of a day for activism and celebration of women spread rapidly across Europe. It reached Russia by 1917 and today is recognized all across the globe. So while popular Women's Day traditions include giving women flowers and small gifts, it's also really critical that we not let this holiday become detached from its activist roots. Yes, the day is absolutely intended to be a time for us to recognize one another's achievements as women, but it's also a call to action. It's a day when we're all encouraged to engage in difficult conversations, to challenge institutions, and to embolden our push for gender parity across the world. With this dedication to progress in mind, it's my thrill to introduce our guest, Vanessa Loader, who's going to not only share the story of her personal journey to empowerment, but will also offer her professional guidance to help each of us unravel our inner patriarchs, set boundaries, and tap into the energy that motivates us. Vanessa Loader is an inspirational keynote speaker and sought-after expert on women's leadership, mindfulness, stress management, and sustainable success. Vanessa's work has been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, The Huffington Post, and Glamour Magazine, among others. And she also has an incredible TED Talk called How to Lean In Without Burning Out. Vanessa received her MBA from Stanford University and her BA from Columbia University, where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude. She's a certified executive coach, and she's trained in neurolinguistic programming, past life regression, and vipassana meditation. We are so excited to have her with us today. Welcome, Vanessa Loader. Hi there, I'm Vanessa Loader, a women's leadership and mindfulness expert, and I'm so, so honored that Amy invited me to offer a talk for this beautiful, empowering, wise, and world-changing podcast. It's my life's work to uplift women and girls, so this podcast is right up my alley. And you can hear more of my backstory in episode 45 of this podcast, where we discuss the beauty myth, but let me walk you through some of the highlights. I grew up in the 80s and 90s when second wave feminism told me I could do anything and be anything and should compete with the best of them, meaning the boys. So I did. When I was in elementary school, probably around fourth grade, kickball was my favorite activity at recess. And I remember the boys got to be in charge of it. They would automatically step into a leadership role, choosing captains and teams, while the girls kind of stood on the sidelines. The boys were always in the middle of the action, and the girls, on the other hand, typically milled about on the edges giggling, which actually kind of irked me because I wanted to be where the action was, and I wanted to be in charge. Even worse in my mind, the boys seemed to have all the fun. They weren't self-conscious, they did whatever they wanted and didn't seem to care what other people thought, and that sounded honestly pretty good to me. 
I vividly remember the first time that I truly wished I wasn't a girl. I was 10 years old and I was standing on that same kickball field, standing near first base in my scuffed sneakers and patched jeans, observing the dynamics around me. Suddenly I thought, I wish I was a boy. Being a boy would be better. And I felt it as this this deep desperation and this frustration. The girls seemed to me like silly props, standing around trying to look cute, while the boys shaped the unfolding of the narrative. Because no one explained what patriarchy is or how it impacts our behavior and beliefs, I honestly kind of blamed the girls for acting the way they did. I looked down on the girly girls who flipped their hair and wore skirts every day and giggled when anyone walked past. I judged them as if their very femininity was shameful. And on some deep unconscious level, I vowed not to be like them. And this was the first of many instances when I would sever myself from my own feminine nature in a world in which it felt too painful and disempowering to be female. And that shaped my perspective for years to come. When people called me a tomboy, I took it as a compliment because I thought boys were better than girls in a lot of ways. I assumed that's just the way it was, that boys get to have all the power, all the fun, and do all the cool things. It seemed unfair, but also like a given. I never thought about how our society set it up that way, and no one ever told me either. So, being naturally ambitious and focused, I set out to show them I could be one of the boys, however unconsciously. Heck, I'd even beat the boys at their own game and prove that girls weren't as weak as they thought. I'd end up carrying that mission with me from the kickball field to the boardroom and beyond, but it came at a very steep cost. I became a perfectionist overachiever who aced math quizzes and got picked first in dodgeball, as proud of my straight A's as my skinned knees. I became accustomed to being the only girl, accustomed to male-dominated environments. In college at Columbia University in New York City, I played Division I soccer and worked towards graduating summa cum laude. There, I'd hear men from my school make comments about how many of the women from our women's-only sister school, Barnard, couldn't have gotten into Columbia. Columbia was the last Ivy League college to admit women starting in 1983. And I'm ashamed to say that I took these comments at face value and felt proud of having been accepted to the co-ed school without seeing how much this attitude devalued women. I took some women's studies classes at Barnard and was interested in women's empowerment, but the women's college, it also felt like a strange, separate, and less important world as implied by those around me. I didn't realize how much I was buying into a system of power and a hierarchy of worthiness based on gender. I was aware of really egregious acts of sexism. I called myself a feminist and would stand up to defend women, but there were a lot of subtle behaviors and beliefs that I inadvertently adopted. In school, when we studied the accomplishments of mostly white men, instead of questioning the curriculum, I took it as further proof that the only way to succeed in this man's world was to act like a man. So I did. After graduation, I took a prestigious job on Wall Street, where I cursed like a sailor, which I still do sometimes, (laughs) dressed in masculine-looking pants and sharp blazers, and once wolfed down a seven-inch Subway sandwich in under seven minutes on a dare while the senior partners cheered me on. Pulling all-nighters and working 100-hour weeks was normal and something to brag about. Wall Street was a work-hard, play-hard culture in which I excelled, if I ignored the blatant sexism. As an eager new investment banking analyst, 
I beamed when a male coworker said one of the managing directors mentioned my name. Until I found out, it was while he perused company photos, listing who he wanted to have sex with. That day, I muzzled my shock, repulsion, disillusion, and sadness, but something in me began to crack. In subtle and not-so-subtle ways, I was being told where my value lay. Still, I put my head down, convincing myself that I could prove my worth through more prestigious jobs, a business school degree, and more. I tried to do what I'd done on that kickball field as a little girl, attempting to beat the boys at their own game. I spoke up in meetings more than my male colleagues. I volunteered for projects. I worked hard. I earned the highest bonus of any associate in my peer group, followed by more promotions and plenty of money. I'm embarrassed to admit that I even went to strip clubs to show I could hang with the boys. There were inklings of another life, an alternate existence with different possibilities. When I graduated from college, I thought about joining the Peace Corps, but then I went into investment banking instead. When I felt burned out from my job, I got into yoga and dabbled in meditation, but couldn't really seem to make it stick. Overall, my life was ruled by achievement and this deep desire to prove my worth. I was chasing the wrong kind of power. Then, in my early 30s, something substantial began to shift inside of me. It all started to feel hollow, like a charade I no longer wanted to act out, a game I'd gotten really good at but didn't actually enjoy. I began to do some soul-searching, looking for answers. I began to wake up. First, I hired a life coach, initially because I was scared to get engaged to my then-boyfriend, now-husband. After I overcame some of my fear of marriage and we got married, I told my coach it was time to examine my career. I just don't love my job, I told her. I like the people, it's intellectually stimulating, but I look at the partners, and I don't really want that. I want something with more fulfillment and meaning, where I'm having an impact. But I have no idea what that is or how to find it. As I began exploring what I wanted to do next, I became fascinated with neuroscience, mindfulness, alternative healing modalities like hypnosis and past life regression healing, and optimal performance in behavioral psychology. I had what can only be described as a spiritual awakening. While attending a women's meditation day, my first day-long meditation retreat, there was this moment late in the day we'd been meditating from 7 a.m. till 5 p.m., and around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I did this thing that I think a lot of beginning meditators do, where we were in the middle of a sit, everyone had their eyes closed meditating, with the teachers up front on a dais. I kind of peeked my eyes open and looked around the room like, are all these people really still meditating? This has been hours of this. How are they doing it? And in that moment, when I glanced around the room, I happened to see one of the teachers sitting up on the dais on her cushion. She had gray hair with these beautiful white streaks in it. And she was just emanating this powerful, palpable presence. And I looked around the room and I felt, I could feel the energy of all of these women gathered together. And this thought came through me in that moment, which was, oh my gosh, I've been chasing the wrong kind of power my entire life. The power that I really want, it's in this room right now. It's in all of these women it's in these teachers, it's in that one teacher with the gray hair, with the streaks of white, and it's in me. I spent the next 10 years exploring ways to connect with my inner self, what I call my soul, which I now believe is neither feminine nor masculine, but has aspects of both integrated into its wholeness. 
I realized how deeply I'd repressed my feminine nature to make it in a man's world. And also how I was trying to beat the patriarchy by climbing the wrong ladder. Rather than owning my feminine power, claiming my sacred masculine power, and integrating both into my own wholeness. Instead, I had been trying to suppress my true self. Part of my fundamental issue, I think, in hindsight, was that I was trying to beat the patriarchy without realizing that this would leave me inextricably linked with it. And also without realizing this couldn't occur without me internalizing patriarchy itself. So instead, what I've attempted to do is integrate as I mentioned, my feminine and masculine sides. Excavating my own feminine power has been an incredible journey, which included discovering what it means to treat myself with self-compassion instead of harsh criticism, dismantling old beliefs about success, work, and marriage, finding the courage to do what I want instead of what I should do. I've learned how to be a powerful woman who leads with love, authenticity, vulnerability, and collaboration rather than competition, with playfulness rather than seriousness, with pleasure, rest, and renewal, rather than grueling self-control, unwavering exertion, and forced motivation. Choosing these qualities over and over and over again has taken tremendous courage. It's been a continual act of reprogramming my own belief structure at the very core of my being to refuse to believe the ingrained lies that these qualities are a sign of weakness, and instead recognize that they augment my strength. I felt so much pain in my heart, so much confusion as I tried to connect with my feminine power. How do you access a place that's been buried deep in the soil of your soul? You excavate it, one shovel full at a time, removing the lies, distortions, beliefs, and fears that have accumulated on top of this precious treasure. You have to get your hands dirty, feeling the muck and grime, while remaining focused on the reward that you know lies underneath. I have felt the rage and grief of thousands of women, held back, pushed down, told we can't do or be or have what we want. It all felt so unfair so unjust. I have screamed so loud my throat became hoarse and have sobbed so hard that my body shook. Why are women treated so poorly? How can I stop treating myself so poorly? And how can we change this, all of it, forever? In the midst of all this unraveling, there was no anchor or guidance to rediscover myself. No one ever taught me how to fully occupy my feminine power and my female body in a way that felt true to me. What did that mean? How could I do that? Who were the role models for that? My body became my teacher, giving me signs when things felt off through its heaviness and constriction and giving me guidance when things felt true through its open, expansive, excited feelings. I paid attention to the messages it sent me. My heart became my wise confidant unceasingly steering me towards my true self. My heart has allowed me to access this sacred, untouched place within myself that cannot be influenced by people-pleasing or doing what I should do. My heart, I learned, is the house of my deeper truth. My womb, the scariest of these three places for me to approach, 
taught me about healing in my own creative power. I spent time releasing the shame and guilt that I held in my womb, finally getting it. I felt all this shame and guilt because other people told me to, because they too sensed the power that is held within my womb. And some of them wanted it for themselves, or at least didn't want me to have it. And so I began reclaiming my sacred womb power and channeling it for my own good and creative expansion. The womb is a power center in our bodies. Yes, we can use it to literally create new life if you're born in a female body, but also to create new projects for our work, to birth ideas, to channel our creative and sexual energy. As women, we've been told to deny our pleasure and our desires. Many women repress their desires, and I don't mean just sexual desires. We make our desires go dormant, shame ourselves, or allow others to shame us for having needs and passions. Reclaiming your sacred womb power is about reclaiming pleasure, desire, and sexual energy as a creative life force that can feed and fuel you and others. When I talk about reclaiming pleasure and owning our desires, I could be referring to something as basic as allowing ourselves an hour to sit on the couch and just relax in the middle of the day. Your desires could include taking a painting class, lounging outside on your deck with a magazine and a cup of tea, making yourself a smoothie that you drink out of a fancy glass. That's one of my favorites. As I uncovered my true feminine nature, I began to forge my own path forward in an even deeper way. I was no longer following the rules laid out by society, but instead tuning into an inner authority, that of my body, heart, and intuition, that of my soul. I made dramatic changes in my life to be more aligned with my true values, such as pursuing work that fed rather than depleted me. I felt waves of joy, expansion, and alignment that I didn't know were possible as I began living a life that felt more true to me. But even as I did this deep work and made these sweeping changes, I noticed old patterns surfacing. Staying in this awakened headspace wasn't always easy. For example, I'd work in a way that was punishing and cruel towards my needs, not resting enough, pushing through at my computer for hours a day even when my body cried for mercy, not even getting up to go to the bathroom. I knew I should be nourishing myself and making sure my needs were met. But it was as though I had an inner patriarch who was squatting in my house and refusing to leave, like a stubborn tenant in a rent-controlled building. People talk about crushing it at work, but what if the point isn't to crush it, but to savor it? I began to wonder if there was a better way to live. Could I be ambitious and productive without rushing anxiety-fueled through my days? Could I realize my own dreams instead of satisfying everyone else's perceived expectations? Why was I constantly meeting other people's needs but ignoring my own, only to wind up resentful and exhausted? How could I balance work and family, health and hobbies? How could I honor my ambition and nourish my soul? I'd been so busy following this prescribed path that I honestly had no idea how to forge my own way forward, even once I realized that I needed to create change. Thus began another phase of my journey. I needed to figure out how to pursue big, bold dreams and desires without sacrificing myself. I wanted my inner patriarch to leave the building and be replaced by a healthy version of masculine energy that would help me take action and propel things forward with greater ease. I realized that not only had I repressed my feminine power, but I had scorned the masculine because of my negative experiences. I didn't revere or cherish the masculine. 
I feared it. I hated it. I wanted to crush it. (laughs) And it almost ruined my marriage, causing me to be consumed by overwhelm and resentment as I didn't know how to receive support. In couples therapy, my husband and I joked that I was projecting the patriarchy onto him. If he came home from work and I was in the kitchen prepping dinner and dealing with the kids and I heard him crack open a beer, a rage would fill my body and I'd lash out at him with the anger of a thousand medusas. It was a complicated situation to unpack because at times there were real inequities in our marriage that needed to be addressed. But I also brought a whole lot of anger and pain to the table that had nothing to do with him. I explored the lineage in my family and saw how the women disrespected the men, how the women were filled with resentment at being shackled, and how this showed up as scorn for men and asserting complete control in the household, supposedly a woman's domain. I noticed how I did this myself, micromanaging my husband at home, not allowing him to do things his way, treating him like some poorly qualified, inept employee who was never up to the task. Once I became alert to it, Women's rage at being treated as subservient showed up everywhere. I started noticing all the snarky comments other wives and I made towards our husbands, shaming them, belittling them, controlling them, bossing them around, especially when it came to the house and kids. I realized the same way men had not empowered women in the workplace, we were not empowering our husbands at home. My husband was scared of doing something wrong, scared of my constant disappointment. This was not a recipe for intimacy and connection or joyful partnership. I started to really look at my own feminine shadow, the parts of myself that were so wounded that they wanted to wound and blame men. I started to look at the parts of myself that refused to acknowledge or receive the healthy masculine. I noticed all the ways I'd been a lone warrior, trying to single-handedly take care of all of my own needs, not allowing myself to receive support. For many women, it's easy to take care of others, but we're often not very good at letting others take care of us. And so began the next phase of my healing journey, discovering and saying yes to the healthy masculine, both within myself and being able to honor and receive it from others. What does that even mean to access the healthy masculine, you might be wondering? (laughs) One woman executive I coached told me a story about riding her bike up a very steep hill in Marin, California. She'd given up and was about to start walking her bike when this man came up behind her and said, you can do it. And with her consent, he then put his hand on her back to push her along while simultaneously pedaling his own bike one-handed. So he literally pushed her up the hill with one hand for the rest of the way, their two bikes riding in tandem side by side. That is an embodiment of the healthy masculine in action. There's a chart I created with my colleague Sherry Lassala to name some of the unhealthy versus healthy expressions of masculine and feminine energy. And if we can, we'll put this in the show notes, but I'll just read a few excerpts. So some of the qualities of the unhealthy masculine, domination, power over, aggression, controlling, bias towards bigger, faster, more growth, Overemphasis on logical linear, overemphasis on short term to neglect of long term, hero mentality going it alone, treating people and yourself like machines, focus on productivity, output, pushing hard, neglecting feelings and living systems. Versus the healthy masculine, some of the qualities of that are protecting, 
providing, giving a sense of agency and empowerment, healthy challenge, stretching beyond limits, fierce encouragement, a sense of you can do it, the wind at your back, healthy focus, healthy results and task orientation, a sense of discipline and rigor, logical, rational, objective, clear thinking, goal-oriented, strategic, independent and interdependent. The unhealthy feminine qualities, if you tend to overplay those, for example, could be over-accommodating, people-pleasing, being overly compliant, submissive, collapsed, dependent, over-focused on relation and wanting to be liked, over-emotional or unable to regulate emotions, invisible, difficulty speaking up, taking up space, taking a stand, Overemphasis on people, feelings, and process to the neglect of results. The healthy feminine, in contrast, is characterized by nurturing, inclusivity, healthy relational orientation, sense of partnership, collaboration, communal versus competition, healthy process orientation, inflow, intuitive, receptive, open, taking care of my own needs, included in and balanced with the needs of the whole and a sense of rest and renewal and honoring the cycles of life. As we begin to pay attention to the ways we've undervalued the healthy feminine and overvalued the unhealthy masculine, we can create positive changes in ourselves and the world at large. When we let go of our rage, our fear, our grief, and we begin opening up to new possibilities for how we can each show up for ourselves, each other, and the world, magic happens. Now, I teach other women how to access their feminine power and be open to receiving healthy masculine support. So here I am, a Stanford MBA spiritual teacher, and having shared my own personal story and journey with patriarchy, I'd like to also share some useful tools and frameworks with all of you listening in hopes that you can experience some of these concepts and positive changes too. When I lead coaching calls and ask women to try to tap into the feeling of being supported by the masculine. I've done an embodiment exercise where I'll have them stand up, and you can even try this on if you're somewhere where you feel safe and comfortable doing it. Stand up and imagine you're propelling someone else forward. So put your hands in front of you, palms facing out, and push. Imagine you're pushing someone else forward. Many women can easily identify with this feeling. They are very used to propelling others. Then I have them imagine propelling themselves, giving another push into the air in front of them, and just noticing how that feels. For me, when I do this and imagine propelling myself, it's a much more forceful push. It's not gentle at all. I don't know how to propel myself in a more gentle way. It's something that I'm still learning how to do. Lastly, I have the women imagine someone is standing behind them, pushing their back at their shoulder blades, gently but firmly propelling them forward. So take a moment and see if you can imagine that. Almost arching your back and imagining someone's gently but firmly propelling you forward. Just notice if that feeling is familiar at all or not. Many women I've coached cannot even imagine what it would be like to be fully held and supported. When we get to this last part, the women often draw a blank They can't think of any examples of feeling this way in their own lives. Some of the women can only connect with this feeling of being propelled by an outside force when they think of nature, 
For example, one woman in a session could imagine the feeling of being propelled by the wind on her kayak. Another felt the ocean carrying her forward. That brings us to the theme for today of the inner patriarch. In my own life, as I've mentioned, I noticed how I have adopted behaviors, beliefs, and patterns of interacting with others that were forged by forces greater than me. Have you ever had an experience where you can see where you're stuck or how you're doing things that don't make you happy, but you can't seem to stop yourself? I have. As someone who likes to believe I have a choice in how I show up and what my life becomes, I was really curious to get to the bottom of this. If certain behaviors and beliefs don't serve me or others, why do I persist in them? (laughs) Why, I wondered, was I doing things that made me resentful? Why was I feeling so much pressure to be perfect, physically beautiful, successful in my career, the ideal mom and partner? I wanted to know why this happened, which Amy's podcast helps us all better understand. But more importantly, what I really wanted to know was how could I change these outdated beliefs and patterns within myself? How could I get out of these old ways of being and create the life I really want? One big piece of the puzzle that I've experienced is learning how to identify and systematically dismantle that pesky inner patriarch so I can step into my full feminine, balanced power, feel my worthiness as a woman and a human being without trying to earn it, and make choices that are aligned with my personal values and how I live and work. We can do this regardless of gender or sexual orientation. You may have different themes or beliefs that impact you, but we've all internalized something. We're all impacted by forces greater than our individual childhood, including our broader culture and ancestral lineage. Being raised within patriarchy, many of us have internalized beliefs and ways of being that do not feel good. It's time to let them go. Whether you're a man, woman, transgender, or non-binary, you can learn to identify some of the forces that seem to go against what you authentically desire and what truly makes you happy. This topic is so near and dear to my heart, and I feel like I could talk for seven hours about it. And if you want to hear more, you know, just leave a comment or let Amy know. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a sequel. So the first pattern that I'd like to discuss when it comes to your inner patriarch, dismantling your inner patriarch, is around women and human giver syndrome. So how can you stop thinking of yourself as the fixer of the world and instead set boundaries and say no with greater ease and without feeling guilty? There was a fascinating longitudinal study conducted on Richard Schwartz's IFS, Internal Family Systems, based psychotherapeutic intervention that was done at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School in Boston. So basically what they did is they took a group that consisted of mostly Catholic women who were suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, and they treated them with internal family systems, which is an evidence-based model of psychotherapy that suggests Our mind has multiple inner parts that contain valuable qualities, and our core self knows how to heal and allows us to become integrated and whole. So for example, you have these protective parts inside of your mind that might say, you know, don't apply for that job. What if you don't get it? And those parts are protecting some of your more wounded parts, maybe a part that feels like it's not good enough. And your core self can help create healing and integration within your psyche. So in this study, The participants received six months of IFS therapy with a focus on their arthritis. So they tracked and measured the number of joints impacted, the amount of pain, and they also tracked the levels of anxiety and depression in the participants of the study and in the control group. 
And the results showed that an IFS-based intervention had positive effects. It reduced pain and depressive symptoms while improving physical function and self-compassion. After six months, the IFS group showed incredible improvement versus the control group. And that followed for a period of months afterwards. Some of them went into complete remission. Now, here's the part that's really interesting and that I think has to do with dismantling your inner patriarch. These Irish Catholic Boston mothers had been taking care of everyone else but themselves. And the majority of them ended up using the IFS treatment protocol to identify and communicate with a part that believed that it needed to take care of everyone but themselves. When they focused on the pain and asked it questions, it became clear that the pain was a reaction to hating the caretaking parts because their bodies wanted to have a life, wanted to assert themselves, wanted to have more balance and justice in their lives. And as they worked that polarization out, the pain actually changed because these other parts didn't have to keep using pain to get attention. So when they shifted this, their physical bodies healed. What? (laughs) So that study just blew my mind because when I heard about it and heard, oh, Irish Catholic mothers who have a caretaking part, and once they work with and heal the caretaking part, their arthritis, their pain, their anxiety, depression go away, I heard that. And I said, okay, that to me is an offshoot of patriarchy. Yes, we each have our individual childhood pain and trauma, but the commonality of the symptoms and the commonality of the wounded parts that these women had, that points to a larger theme. If you want to learn more about Richard Schwartz and the IFS, Internal Family Systems-Based Therapy Model of Healing, I recommend his recent book, which is called No Bad Parts, or you can listen to him describe it in a podcast episode on Insights on the Edge with Tammy Simon. So women can find it challenging to take a stand for our authentic needs because of a deep, often unconscious conditioning that we are here to serve others. We have become what Kate Mann calls, quote unquote, human givers rather than human beings. And in her book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, Mann defines human givers as a class of people who are, quote, expected to offer their time, attention, affection, and bodies willingly, placidly to the other class of people, the human beings. If you want to read a great book on women and human giver syndrome, I highly recommend Burnout, which was written by two sisters, Emily Nagoski, who's a PhD, and Amelia Nagoski, who's a DMA. And in that book, they write, quote, human givers must at all times be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, which means they must never be ugly, angry, upset, ambitious, or attentive to their own needs. Givers are not supposed to need anything. If we had set out to design a system to induce burnout in half the population, we could not have constructed anything more efficient. Your body, with its instinct for self-preservation, knows on some level that human giver syndrome is slowly killing you. That's why you keep trying mindfulness and green smoothies and self-care trend after self-care trend. But that instinct for self-preservation is battling a syndrome that insists that self-preservation is selfish. So your efforts to care for yourself might actually make things worse, activating even more punishment from the world or from yourself, because how dare you? End quote. So the book goes on to say that human giver syndrome is the framework on which the second shift hangs, the shrinking but ongoing inequality in the time and effort 
spent on childcare and housekeeping between men and women, 40 hours per week for women versus an hour and a half for men globally. Even in the most balanced nations, which include the US, the UK, and Canada, women still spend 50% more time in this unpaid labor. And for many women and men, success isn't just the constant hustle, corner office, working on weekends, endless FaceTime or Zoom meetings, pushing others aside to get to the top, or taking on a tough masculine persona. In my book, The Soul Solution, I talk about the myth of the gold standard and that women feel tremendous pressure to succeed in all aspects of our lives. The ideal worker, the perfect mother, the supportive wife and friend. The result? According to a 2016 study published in the Journal of Brain and Behavior, women are twice as likely to suffer from severe stress and anxiety as men. And according to the United Nations, women are doing nearly three times as much unpaid domestic work. Women's sacrifices are not paying off. While women outnumber men in college and account for about 52% of middle managers in the U.S., only 18% of the highest level leaders and less than 5% of Fortune CEOs are female. COVID-19 has contributed to this issue by making women's lives even more complicated and hectic, as women are disproportionately impacted by the current global crisis and face additional strain in caregiving and homeschooling. So as women transition into the new normal, this problem of being overworked and underfulfilled still remains. So the solution to human giver syndrome may be to raise everyone to be more caring and communally focused. As the Nagoski sisters suggest in their book, quote, what if, just what if, we raised everyone to be a version of a human giver? What if we assumed it was every person's moral responsibility to be generous and attentive to the needs of others? No one would sit watching TV while the other cooked dinner and did the dishes, unless both had mutually agreed that was what worked best for both of them. No law would allow anyone to take control of another person's body because no one would expect that right. End quote. Getting back to my earlier point of integrating a healthy version of the feminine and the masculine within ourselves, much of our inner work as women is to allow ourselves to be more selfish, to pursue our pleasure, to claim our desires, to practice self-compassion, and to luxuriate in leisure. I really feel that leisure and being in flow, allowing yourself pleasure and desire, these are empowerment issues for women. I remember traveling in Turkey years ago and seeing all the men sitting in the cafes playing card games while the women toiled with brooms, sweeping the floors, baking the goods and selling them in the cafes. And I remember it really struck me like, wow, the men are, are lounging around a lot and all the women are like hustling and bustling around them. So as women, it's time for us to claim our rights to relaxation and rest. And as men, I think it's time to step more into the role of human givers to think about how you can support others. Many years ago, a woman on one of the retreats I led told this story. She said her husband was in charge of picking their son up from daycare the day before, and he hadn't realized that the schedule had changed. So he told his wife over dinner that night that he'd accidentally arrived 45 minutes early for pickup. She said, well, so what did you do for those 45 minutes? And he replied, I got a beer. You got a beer? She said incredulously at three o'clock in the afternoon before picking our son up from daycare. Yup, he answered. As she relayed this story, every single woman at the retreat shook her head and sighed audibly. I paused the discussion. What would you have done with 45 minutes to spare? I asked the group of mothers. What would any woman have done? 
Their answers varied in specifics, but they all had the same taking care of business theme. Some of them said, I would have worked in my car. I would have bought diapers online. I would have gone grocery shopping or shopped for household stuff on Amazon, on my phone. I would have made calls, scheduled appointments, run an errand nearby. Every mom in that room said it never would have crossed her mind to get a beer or let alone a pedicure if she had extra time. She would have done something quote unquote productive. So what if instead of judging that woman's husband, we began questioning ourselves with compassion and asking, why am I not taking time to relax by myself? Once you recognize the temptation to overwork, to overdo, to overcommit, it takes courage and commitment to take your foot off the gas. If you're an ambitious woman like me, it's not going to be easy at first. If you live in the modern, fast-paced world and not in a cave in the Himalayas, it's also not going to be easy. It's surprisingly difficult to allow yourself to do less, to stop fixing everything and everyone, to drop the to-do list like a hot potato and lounge around like a couch potato instead. Your very identity might be shaken to its core. And that's okay. In fact, that's good. It means the unraveling of your inner patriarch has begun. So a big part of making what I call the soul solution work is learning how to surrender and trust that the universe has your back. Sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Sometimes when you're trying to do nothing, it's going to be like not scratching an itch. You know, maybe you look around your house and you see the dirty clothes on the floor and you really want to pick them up and you have to resist the urge and let yourself nourish yourself and relax and do nothing. As more of us shift our internal patterning, we'll change the broader cultural narrative, making it easier for future women to do less and have bold, ambitious visions for their lives. One thing that has helped embolden me to make these types of changes in my own life is to understand the research. Whether it's volunteering for a committee or agreeing to pick up the slack for a sick colleague at work, research conducted by Liz Vesterlin, PhD, professor of economics at the University of Pittsburgh, showed that women are more likely than men to volunteer to do non-promotable tasks at work, be asked to do non-promotable tasks, and say yes when asked to do these mundane tasks. Women are overcommitted in a lot of ways and tend to feel more of a psychological burden when asked to do someone a favor. Part of Vesterlin's research showed that while considering how to respond to a request, 31% of women felt worn out, were worried, had a difficult time saying no, or were afraid of being perceived as someone who is not helpful. In comparison, less than 10% of the men felt this way. Men, in contrast, were concerned with whether it was a good use of their time, would it help their career, and would the person owe them a favor in the future? So that research I found incredibly eye-opening and powerful. There's some really interesting things I found in writing my book about women's time and space, having time and space for yourself. So it turns out that protected time signals power. Oh, and by the way, this is a quote from my book, The Soul Solution, which will be released in October of 2022. What, what? Historically, a woman's job was to protect men's time from interruption. Think of the good secretary or wife who acted as a gatekeeper so that the man could relax in peace with his thoughts. Sociologist Christina Nippert-Eng writes about how uninterrupted time is the territory of the advantaged. She has said, quote, to be interrupted is to exist in a state of dishonor, end quote. So implicit in the notion of human givers versus human beings 
is that there's almost an expectation that women's time can and will be trampled on by the demands of others. And this is not okay. Often, this is not from any intentional ill will. It's an ingrained absence of boundaries, resulting from a kind of trickle-down patriarchy. I just made up that term. When we respond to interruptions by offering our help and availability all the time, we encourage more intrusions on our time. Go to any child's birthday party and watch how many times the mothers are interrupted in mid-conversation compared to the fathers. It's astounding, even among dual-income couples. So think of your team at work. How comfortable are you interrupting someone who is more junior than you versus interrupting your boss or your manager? Your question had better be good if you're interrupting someone more important, right? So women being interrupted, if you think about it in meetings, of which there are fewer women in the room already, women are interrupted far more often than men and are less likely to be given credit when we do share our ideas. So maybe you can start to see how more frequent interruptions to women demonstrates an implicit power differential. It also means that our time is more fragmented as a result. And the simple truth is that other people will continue trampling on your time until you put up a gosh darn fence. <laughs> in my group coaching programs and corporate workshops, I often coach women leaders on how to say no without feeling guilty. So today I'd like to share a few quick tips with you. To begin with, I recommend you start small. Don't apologize and be firm and confident in your no or your boundary setting. So pick something small that you'd like to say no to or set a boundary with in the next week, and then see how it feels to get that one thing off your plate. Once you've refused to do something small, you'll see that people don't hate you. Life goes on and the world keeps turning. So the next time it will be easier to say no to an even bigger request. Think of it like building up your saying no muscles. You know, maybe the first step is starting to leave work an hour earlier on Wednesdays to make it home for your kid's soccer game or telling your team that you're not going to be online after 8 p.m. or on weekends doing work anymore. And you want to be clear, concise, and confident when setting a boundary or saying no. You don't need to apologize or justify or explain why. Don't elaborate. That one's really hard for me. I always want to give an explanation and a story, but that actually detracts from it. And it's a way that we can end up opening the back door for the person to push on us even more. How many times have you said, oh, I can't make it, but maybe next time, or maybe, maybe I can make it for the end of that meeting or that social event. And when we do that, we're opening the back door for them to push our boundary again. So if you want some sample saying no scripts, we'll put a cheat sheet or a handout in the show notes with more information. The other tip I recommend is to trust your body. If you get a request and then you feel a heaviness in your body or it just feels wrong or tight inside of you, that might be a sign that you should say no. On the flip side, if you feel light and spacious and free when considering whether or not to take something on, then perhaps it's a signal that you want to say yes. So it's important to learn how to recognize your own internal signals and your body wisdom rather than reacting to the pressure or the demands that other people put on you. One of my really good friends had a situation where her boss at work asked her to be on the board of a nonprofit for childhood development, and she debated it for weeks, struggling with the decision. The higher-ups at her firm supported the cause, it would be good networking, and she did believe in it, but she also had limited time. She was already stretched really thin. And after the Trump election, she really wanted to do work to support minority women. So the board volunteer opportunity felt heavy in her body. She ended up saying no to it, even though that was really scary and hard because she didn't want to disappoint her boss. 
And she called me right afterwards and said, Vanessa, the minute I said no, it was like a weight was lifted from my body. I felt so expansive and open and happy again. So your body really does have really tremendous wisdom inside of it. If you start to tune in to your own inner signals, you'll get important information about what to say yes to and what to say no to. But I know that for me personally, once I discovered the research about women being asked to do more non-promotable tasks and feeling more guilty when they said no, it became easier for me to start setting boundaries, to say no, and to ask for support. And a simple solution at work for when women are asked to do more non-promotable tasks than men, you can share that research with your boss or your manager, and you might even want to suggest that going forward, these types of non-promotable tasks like organizing someone's birthday party or taking notes in a meeting, maybe they should be randomly assigned by drawing names from a hat or by rotating who's responsible until everyone does it so they don't fall on women so much of the time. The second theme I want to address when it comes to dismantling your inner patriarch is what I call the success myth. Most of us know Ariana Huffington as the co-founder of the Huffington Post and the founder and CEO of Thrive Global, as well as one of Time Magazine's most influential people. According to our traditional definition of success, Ariana has crushed it. Oh, by the way, I should mention this is all an excerpt from my book. <laughs> okay, so quote, end quote on myself. <laughs> Do I need to quote myself if I'm reading from my own book? I don't know. Anyway, Ariana has crushed it according to our traditional definition of success, but she also worked so tirelessly that she woke up in a pool of her own blood. She'd been pushing herself so hard that she finally collapsed, hit her head on the corner of her office desk. And when she awoke on the floor with a gaping head wound, she was struck by a single thought. This is success? Waking up in a pool of your own blood? Ariana had followed the old rules based on the traditional paradigm of success, cranking as hard as possible to climb the proverbial <clears throat> patriarchal ladder. But this incident changed her perspective. She quickly became an advocate for redefining success and even wrote the book Thrive, encouraging people to cultivate more holistic and balanced lives. Now, not everyone has a turning point as dramatic as Ariana's. Instead, what I have found working with women over the past decade is that most of us have a subtle but persistent sense that something is off. We find ourselves thinking things like, I just know in my bones I'm meant for something more. I feel a vague sense of dissatisfaction that I can't really pinpoint. Or, this success isn't sustainable. Those revelations, what I call soul whispers, may not be as resounding as literally being hit over the head with the truth, but these quiet inklings about our notions of success matter. Part of the soul solution process is learning to recognize and honor your own subtle cues and sophisticated abilities of discernment. It's also about recognizing that not all the obstacles are internal. Maybe things feel off to you because the system itself is off, not because something is wrong with you. Maybe you're beginning to sense that this play was not written for you or in your favor. So what is the success myth? For ages, our culture has embraced an outdated definition of success, an obsession with productivity and wearing busy as a badge of honor. Many of us feel the ramifications of this every day, and yet concretizing a new definition of success feels insurmountable. What is your personal definition of success? If you're like me, you might have taken on society's default definition without questioning it, which is basically that success equals money plus your job title or promotions. This definition of success devalues caregiving, 
which has historically been the domain of women. It also devalues your mental and emotional well-being. It devalues time in nature, community, giving back, spiritual or religious practices. It's a very simple and myopic definition of success that excludes a lot of things that most of us really care about. And I'll share a simple pie chart graphic from my book in the show notes to illustrate this point. The thing to understand is that the Western world in particular is not set up to support most women's needs or really the needs of anyone who wants to feel balanced, authentic, and fulfilled in their careers. We've been dutifully trying to prove our worthiness and earn other people's approval, acceptance, and love while abandoning ourselves in the process. The solution isn't to strive harder. The new solution, the sole solution, that blasts the success myth to smithereens is to rip up the old playbook created by men of the past and design a new one from the inside out. As Gerda Lerner said, quote, perhaps the greatest challenge to thinking women is the challenge to move from the desire for safety and approval to the most unfeminine quality of all, that of intellectual arrogance, the supreme hubris which asserts to itself the right to reorder the world, a hubris of the godmakers, the hubris of the male system builders, end quote. And that's from Gerda Lerner's book, the creation of patriarchy, which was one of the episodes on this podcast. So unwittingly, women in the Western world continue to surrender our power, playing into subservient roles. We take on more than our fair share of household and childcare duties, stewing in resentment while ineffectually advocating for equitable partnership. I know I've done that. We want meaningful work and we're tired of sacrificing our well-being for approval, but we push ourselves to prove we can make it in the boys club. And since caregiving is devalued in our culture, when we do choose time with our children, we feel compelled to devalue our own choices, joking about leaning out to mask our own shame for opting out of a system that doesn't support us. So one way you can begin to heal this fracture and kind of create your own definition of success is to spend time identifying your core values and really getting clear on what feels like the right definition of success for you that feels more true and more aligned. And then what you can do is just check in on a daily or weekly basis to make sure that you're living your values and staying true to your authentic desires and needs rather than what our culture says you should be doing. In the show notes, I'll include a link to a values tool if you want to use that to determine your core values. So in addition to pursuing this outdated definition of success that's not sustainable or fulfilling, the other offshoot of the success myth that I want to dive a little deeper into is our culture's tendency to devalue caregiving and the ways that we've internalized that belief. So I have a lot of friends who struggle to advocate for themselves financially after they quit their jobs to raise kids because there's no monetary value associated with caregiving. They feel powerless and resentful, beholden to a husband or a partner who gives them a budget versus making joint decisions. And I know, I think Amy commented that this is a huge issue in the Mormon community, since women are so actively discouraged from working outside the home. Many women still get an allowance from their husbands, sort of like a child. Another thing I've noticed when it comes to how we maybe have internalized devaluing caregiving is, for example, how I devalue my own tendencies to want to caregive because it's not prestigious. And that shows up in a lot of ways. You know, for example, I'll overbook my work schedule despite having young children, and then I'll end up feeling out of alignment with my authentic self. The values tool I mentioned has really helped me come back into alignment with what I really want and own my choices, regardless of how the world judges me. 
Another issue that I think many women I talk to face is feeling like they should care give and take on more than 50% of the housework because you're the woman. Sometimes I'm really energized by my work, but then I feel guilty if I'm not doing all the parental stuff. So I've had to really do some work to let go of that guilt. One method that's super simple that I recommend is to practice self-compassion by saying to yourself, I'm just a little bunny doing my best. (laughs) It sounds silly, but saying that brings you into a playful energy. So the next time you're beating yourself up, like I didn't get enough work done because I was with the kids or I didn't spend enough time with the kids because I was working too much, just say, I'm just a little bunny doing my best. Another thing that can be helpful when we talk about both human giver syndrome and the success myth is to recognize that you come by this patterning naturally. Like if you're struggling because you're taking care of everyone else and not getting your own needs met, or you've been playing into a definition of success that doesn't feel good and doesn't resonate, try to not beat yourself up and just recognize that there are larger, broader forces at play that have influenced you. One of the things that really surprised me and that I found fascinating is to learn about inherited family trauma and the research behind epigenetics and how trauma is passed down multiple generations. So we all carry inherited belief structures and patterns of behavior. And that even applies to allowing yourself to experience more rest and leisure. For women within patriarchy, that's something that many generations of women have not been able to have. Often our fears, beliefs, and traumas are passed down from generation to generation, like fine china and silver serving spoons. And yet we never ask, is this serving me? In a study conducted at Emory School of Medicine in 2013, scientists trained mice to fear the smell of cherry blossoms. They would basically expose these mice to the smell of cherry blossoms and then give them a mild electric shock on the foot. Sorry, mice. And then what they found was the first generation offspring of these traumatized mice, they let them become adults and never exposed them to the scent of cherry blossoms. And yet when those children, those baby mice, caught a whiff of the cherry blossom fragrance, they quickly became anxious. Even more interesting, the second generation, so basically the grand mice, if that's a thing, they also showed the same odor sensitivity and fear of the cherry smell, even though they had never been exposed to it. So this study showed that traumatic memories and fear can be passed down through two generations. And there's also recent research done by Rachel Yehuda a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at the Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai that showed that children of Holocaust survivors who had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, were born with low cortisol levels similar to their parents, which predisposed them to experience PTSD symptoms as well. And Yehuda and her team also found epigenetic tags on the children of Holocaust survivors, which influenced how they regulated stress later in life. So all of this research is really groundbreaking because it shows that descendants of survivors carry the physical and emotional symptoms of traumas that they maybe haven't even experienced firsthand. Ancestral trauma and experiences in your family lineage could offer really important context to understanding your life. So maybe some of your struggles and seemingly default reactions are related to a larger pattern, especially when we put this in the context of patriarchy, which is what this podcast is all about. So you can start by getting curious. What were some of the challenges your ancestors faced and how might that be impacting you today? Were there traumatic events or experiences of exclusion in your family's history? Are there any patterns from childhood that you seem to keep reliving? So a great resource if you want to learn more about 
the ancestral trauma and how it gets passed on and epigenetics is to read Mark Woolen's book called It Didn't Start With You. And it's just helpful to notice when you see cultural messaging that reinforces all of these old stereotypes or beliefs that you no longer want to opt into. Once I noticed a sign that read Working Girls Cafe, and it pictured a woman holding a briefcase in one hand, a steaming cup of coffee in the other, running in heels. I vividly remember stopping in my tracks to stare at that sign and realizing, oh my gosh, this is the projection about what it means to be a working woman. No wonder we're all so exhausted. I can't even imagine a sign with a man running without assuming there must be a building on fire. And yet this image of a woman scrambling from one place to another appears so natural and normal to me. This is messed up. (laughs) So if you think about it, if you start noticing, we are inundated with images that show frazzled, harried, exhausted, working women and moms, always rushing somewhere with octopus arms, doing eight things at once. And yes, the research shows this is our current reality. I don't want to dismiss the systemic and cultural forces at play here. They are real. And if we want to change the channel, we have to stop watching the same old movie. We have to insist on a different movie or leave the theater. So one of the things I recommend is give yourself permission to be a slacker. I talked already a little bit about writing yourself a permission slip, taking some time and space for yourself every single day. Even if it's just five or 10 minutes where you lie on the floor listening to relaxing music or just sit on the couch or sit outside and watch the clouds go by like you did as a kid, just five or 10 minutes will start to retrain your nervous system to allow you to relax. So just start small and build from there. But I really would say that reclaiming leisure is a feminist act. And Virginia Woolf was onto something big with a room of one's own. It is of vital importance that women reclaim our private alone space if we hope to fulfill our greatest potential. Historically, women have not been given space. We've had to take it. In public, we literally take up less space, assuming submissive body postures despite the man spreading to our right and left. People will sit next to a woman rather than a man on an airplane because they know the woman will probably take up less space. And if we want to empower ourselves to create lives of meaning, purpose, joy, and impact, we must start to take up more space in private and in public. So what I recommend is a combination of daily space, bigger space, and recurring space. (laughs) So three things. So for proper personal nourishment, I personally think you have to take some space for yourself every single day. And this is going to feel impossible and uncomfortable at first. Don't worry, take baby steps. You can just choose a sacred space, maybe in your home, a cozy little nook or in your backyard or something within a five, 10 minute walk or drive from your house and just go there every day for, you know, five, 15 minutes and just check in with yourself. Like, how am I doing today? What do I need? I also recommend you take some time to be alone in a bigger space. That might mean going away for a longer period of time on a retreat, getting yourself a hotel room just for you for one night or finding a more spacious container like nature. Nature is a beautiful place to go to take really big space and it can feel very nourishing to do that. Lastly, I recommend recurring space. So for the last four years, I've been a member of a women's circle that meets one Sunday every month. And while it isn't strictly alone time, it's in service to myself and my needs. It really nourishes my soul on the deepest level. 
having these gatherings automatically on my calendar makes it so much easier to follow through. And when I first joined, I wasn't sure how my family would cope with me being gone one Sunday a month. But now I can't imagine not doing it. And by booking a babysitter or my in-laws to come some Sundays, and I encourage my husband to go on a hike or hit golf balls, he gets space too. So now my husband and kids expect me to be gone, and they know I'm always going to return happier when I get back. So I recommend scheduling some sort of recurring time alone or nourishing time with others who ask nothing of you. (laughs) You're going to find the guilt and the resistance diminish as you get used to having something recurring on your calendar. Plus, you save time and energy by avoiding scheduling it every time. Those logistics alone can feel too exhausting to manage, and that can be the hurdle that stops you from taking the space you need. So when you commit to something in advance that's recurring and the day approaches, you don't have to do the work of justifying it or organizing it or planning it. It just makes it all so much easier. And as you do take more time and space for yourself, you might notice an insidious belief crop up that you need to earn your time. Here's the thing I would like to say. You are already worthy of rest and renewal, and there is no prerequisite of exhaustion to get into the club of nourishment. Taking care of needs does not have to be a zero-sum game. Nourishing yourself is the best way you can nourish others. And lately, in my own life, I've been experimenting with the thought, what if I only agreed to the work projects, social invitations, and opportunities that feel like a hell yes? What might my life look like if I lived in radical alignment with what feels good? Personally, I'm still very much a work in progress with everything I'm talking about today. So I have not mastered any of this, but I'm fascinated and obsessed with it because I really want to find a way to change some of these patterns in myself. The last thing I want to say to end is that we're all connected. When you're feeling energized, alive, fulfilled, calm, happy, and creatively stimulated, You bring that energy to people around you and to the world. And when you're cranky or short-tempered or feeling stagnant, you also carry that energy. So as you learn how to take responsibility for dismantling your inner patriarch and you begin to create the life you truly desire, you're going to experience positive growth and expansion. And a natural next step in the journey is to take your own individual growth and expand it to the community and those around you. So we're all both teachers and students, and if this talk tickled your fancy or strummed the strings of your soul in surprising ways, I guarantee it's because, on some level, you're meant to share and teach about these topics too. It could be with your partner, your kids, with family members or friends, with your colleagues at work, or on a broader scale in your community or in the world. So take anything from this podcast that's been of value and please pass it on to others. This is how we can create a ripple effect of positive change in ourselves and the world at large. In my dreams, I imagine a world in which the masculine celebrates, honors, worships, and bows down to the feminine. And the feminine celebrates, honors, worships, and bows down to the masculine. This vision makes me cry. It's so beautiful. I imagine a world in which we co-create together, lifting each other up to greater and greater levels, feeling even more love, joy, expansion, and abundance from the ways we interact with each other. Whatever your personal experience with your own feminine and masculine energies and with the feminine and masculine archetypes in society, I hope you know in your bones how absolutely lovable and beautiful you are, to trust yourself in your knowing. You are loved, you are whole and complete just as you are, with all your flaws and foibles. 
You don't need to prove your worthiness or earn your enoughness. You don't need to be fixed. All is well. All is well. All is well. You are exactly where you need to be. So let us all ask ourselves, what if I am the solution I have been looking for, always and forever? So thank you so much for joining me for this very long, (laughs) comprehensive talk on dismantling your inner patriarch. I'm so, so happy you're here. I hope this was useful for you. Please follow up with additional resources in the show notes if there's anything that you think would be useful to you. I'd love to hear from you. You could email me at info at vanessaloader.com if you have any questions or follow-up thoughts. Much of today's talk was taken as excerpts from my forthcoming book, The Soul Solution, S-O-U-L, which is also The Soul Solution, S-O-L-E, what? (laughs) Which will be released in October 2022. So if you enjoyed this talk, please get the book when it comes out. And thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this special community. May we all dismantle our inner patriarchs with as much ease and joy and grace as possible. Have a wonderful day. May all your dreams come true and may your nightmares turn into doorways. Thank you. so grateful to Vanessa Loader for sharing her story and these wonderful practical steps for self-empowerment. Supplementary materials for this episode are available now on our website, breakingdownpatriarchy.com. And for our listeners who would like to learn more or even attend one of Vanessa's courses or talks, you can find information at vanessaloader.com. I'd also like to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thank you, as always, listeners. Whether it's still International Women's Day when you're listening or whether you're listening another time, I hope you'll have a day of encouragement and action and take some space to celebrate yourself and the women in your life. Don't forget to join in the conversation with the Breaking Down Patriarchy community on our website or our Instagram, and tune in next week when we'll hear a fascinating and heartbreaking story from an anonymous contributor as they invite us along on their journey to reckon with patriarchy as an LDS missionary. Join us for her story next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs>